You're listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. Much to discuss on the show ahead. Of course, big game for the Raptors tonight. I can tell you that reports now, Joel Embiid did not show up this morning for shoot-around. He is listed with an upper respiratory infection and is probable for tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Kawhi. Kawhi Leonard, what a monster and the most talented player to ever don a Raptors jersey. I said it, and I will defend it to anyone. But lots to get to over the next hour. Very quickly, this just into my inbox now, a victory of sorts for... Premier Doug Ford, remember about the Ron Tavner issue and whether or not there was political interference. The Integrity Commissioner has just released a letter saying, I've been requested by the NDP to look into this and see whether or not the Premier acted uh, inappropriately. There is not enough evidence to even begin or open an investigation. So a victory of sorts right there for the Premier. Well, in the second half of our hour, we're going to have a fascinating look at doomsday cults. You know, it's been a while since we've heard much about them, you know, in our digital world. How have they manifested, changed, and do they pose a danger to themselves and the public? I will take you to London, Ontario, where doomsday cults are still very much alive. And cults are alive as well in New York City. We will take you there, and we will talk about why we should still be very much concerned about this. Also, the thorny issue of NCR, not criminally responsible. In popular sentiment, it's viewed as a cop-out, a dodge, a way to avoid paying the real price of a crime by claiming, somehow, you just weren't in control. In our final segment, a look at what a finding of not criminally responsible really means for someone. In our second segment coming up, More thorny questions. An incredible interview with a woman waiting for end-of-life services. She is scheduled to die as early as the end of this week. Her message to you, and the question, why should publicly funded religious-based hospitals be able to deny you this service? But we begin with the fire that is currently underway on Eglinton West in Kiel. It is more than an inconvenience. It is more than an ongoing danger to first responders and firefighters as they battle it. It is more than just a worry about who may or may not be responsible. Is it arson? It is more than kids having to be relocated and sent to a different school. Because Toronto is losing part of its heritage in this fire. If you value a civic history that's expressed in architecture and monuments, then this is a sad morning. First, though, I want to take you back to the fire scene and to the mayor, John Tory. Uh, I just came here today, as I do often on these major uh, fire scenes, to show my support for the uh, first responders for our Toronto Fire Service and the Toronto Police Service and everybody else that's been involved. Uh, And obviously this has been a very difficult and long-lasting series of events that have happened here at York Memorial. Investigations will proceed as soon as it's safe uh, for uh, those authorities to uh, get inside the building and conduct their investigation. 
uh, and no stone will be left unturned. That is the Mayor John Tory at the scene this morning and also the fire and the impact on the community and on the history of this city was expressed at Queen's Park. Here is Andrea Horvath, the leader of the NDP, leading off question period this morning. On behalf of all of the MPPs in the legislature, our uh, sincere concern and worry about the fire that's happening at uh, York Memorial Collegiate Institute and all of the f- staff and faculty and students who um, you know who attend there and who work there, it's devastating to see that institution go up in flames on its 90th anniversary. That is Andrea Horvath speaking in the legislature this morning about the fire that is still ongoing. And a little more history about the school. It was opened in 1930. It was built for York Township Council in memory of all the local youth that were killed in the First World War. And on a plaque at the front of the building, it says the following. There are torches of remembrance and shields of honor flanking the main entrance. The upper set of 11 steps leading to the front doors symbolized Armistice Day, November 11th, 1918. On the wall outside the school's auditorium is a mural by John Hall honoring the lives lost in the Second World War. And below, a mural hangs the York Memorial's honor rolls. Jamie Marocker has been covering this for us, and I just wanted to give you all a sense of perspective at what is on fire and what we are losing. But, Jamie, I want to ask you about the timeline here, because we have two separate fires and much speculation about the possibility of arson here. What do we know? Well, just that, that... Chief Matthew Pegg came out and said there are two distinct incidents that took place. So one is being investigated as suspicious, potentially as arson. That was yesterday's event. Um, At around 2 p.m., the school actually had to be evacuated for a fire that's believed to have begun in the auditorium. The students, staff, they were all brought outside. We spoke at the principal. She says she could see the flames starting to lick through the windows, and the first floor was, was very damaged, but they were able to get that fire under control. Now, it wasn't until around 3.30 in the morning when a security guard here noticed there was some glowing coming from inside, called the fire department back, and it appears a second fire has started. Now, originally, the chief said these are two distinct fires, but at the last update, he says, you know what, we have to go back, we have to look, there's going to be some work uh, to dig into this, that it could have been... Um, that the fire just rekindled. So there's still a large portion of this investigation. There's still a large portion of figuring out uh, where this started. And that's because at this point, Alan, the firefighters can't even get inside. Give me a sense of what you're seeing from your perspective. I understand that you're fairly close to the scene, but in a blocked-off area? Yeah, so I'm in uh, the field, the field of the school. So we're looking at um, a massive portion of the school that's been charred huge billowing smoke that's coming out of the top and all of the fire firefighters uh, are actually stationed back here they have their ladders um, and they're actually fighting the fire from above as best they can but because there's so much thick smoke and it's too dangerous to go inside they haven't been able to get go inside about two hours ago they were evacuated from the roof so even though we've had over a hundred firefighters on scene there's not a lot they can do and unfortunately you can see that they are struggling to contain this blaze. From your perspective, do you have a sense of damage? I know that is often difficult to assess oh, yeah. from your perspective. Yeah, you can see the whole um, 
back portion that I'm looking at here that, that kind of looks out onto the field, it's charred. All the windows are blown out. Actually, a ton of the brick on the top, so the roof kind of collapsed in on itself. Brick started to fall off. That happened pretty early on. And I was looking um, in our live truck. We have a thing called a mask cam that will kind of look from above and you can actually see that the entire roof is engulfed um, and there are still flames licking up during certain parts of the roof so I imagine I I hate to say this Alan but I imagine this is going to be total destruction that is heartbreaking for so many people that went to that school that know that school that is a fixture in the city of Toronto I outlined uh, in our introduction why it is so important and and how it has been an important part of that part of the city. Now, Jamie, there are going to be so many questions about if, A, this is a rekindle. I mean, the Toronto firefighters are going to be just absolutely raked, if you pardon the pun. Yeah about the possibility of leaving it behind. And then on the second point, how is it possible that the scene was not more secure? Well, I mean, there was security here overnight, especially when you consider that they had potentially thought this was a suspicious incident. They deemed it suspicious this morning. But I think that is what's making the chief hesitant to say that this is a rekindling because, you know, they they had a portion of this fire under control at one point, and now it is completely out of control. It's a six-alarm fire. I know that's difficult um, to understand, but basically that is massive. And because they can't get in because of all this smoke, they're really at the mercy of of the fire. And and I'm, we are literally standing here, Alan, and watching it go up in smoke. Jamie Marocker is a Global News reporter and has been on scene all morning long. Jamie, thank you so much for your work today. Sorry, I didn't have better news. Well, it is not good news. It is not good news, as you heard the latest there from York Memorial and Jamie Marocker telling us the sad truth of it is that it looks like it is a total destruction for that incredible building. We will have more on that course throughout the course of the day here on Global News Radio, and you can watch what has happened and is happening on Global News tonight at 5.30. It is time to take a small break, and when we come back, an incredible interview with a woman who was scheduled to have assisted suicide later this week. It is a perspective that I think you need to hear. And that is next. Welcome back, and no one can say that this program does not tackle tough issues. We do not, on this program, shy away from asking hard questions. And next, I want to introduce you to a woman who is currently in hospital. Her name is Violetta Micaiah. I'll introduce you to her this way. I'm in pain. What sense? There is no sense. In an interview with Global News' Catherine McDonald, Micaiah talks about what she is about to do, which is namely end her life through medical assistance in dying, which is known as MAID. 
Violetta Micaiah was diagnosed with endometrial cancer in 2015. And since then, things have not gone well. She is now in hospital, as we mentioned, and here is her message to new Canadians and Canadians like her who have come from other countries and perhaps English is a second language. People, especially immigrants, should know that dying in dignity, it's follow the law made and thanks God to government that they really accepted this law. They don't even know how many people will be happy knowing this and even this interview I doing because I want more this information get involved with people who really went through what I went. You can watch the entire interview which is gripping and it is online on globalnews.ca, the interview conducted by Catherine McDonald of Global News, who joins me on the line. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Alan. Uh, this woman is incredible in her message and her the clarity with which she speaks. Tell me your impressions. Yeah, so she really is an inspiration. And, and trust me when I tell you, when I, I got a call from someone a global viewer saying there's a, a woman who wants to tell her story because she was unaware of medical assistance and dying. This this woman was actually in hospital on April 21st. She went in in pain. Uh, she's been unable to work as a seamstress. She's been working for 12 years at a, a clothing store named TNT. She said, I went into the hospital uh, in a great deal of pain. I had canceled my trip home to my native Georgia the day before, and they were going to discharge me. And she said, it, it's then she mentioned that she had plans uh, to commit suicide because she was unaware of medical assistance in dying. And it's at that point that uh, one of the medical staff said to her, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, and someone from the palliative care department came in. And, uh, of course, you have to qualify. You have to be incurable. You have to be very sick. You have to be able uh, to consent to this. You have to wait 10 days after uh, consenting because there is a cooling-off period. They want to make sure you know what you're doing. You have time to reflect on it. And Violetta Mikea said this is what she wants to do. She is quite excited and happy. She says, I'm happy with this decision. She says, we have enough difficulties in life. While she's only 59 years old, she doesn't want to suffer anymore. And and she, she said to me, if I had children, it might be different, but she never married. Um, her family, most of her family's back in Georgia, and she doesn't want to die alone in an apartment. She says, I don't want to be found decomposing, you know, weeks after the fact. And that was why she was con- contemplating committing suicide rather and, than suffering. And Catherine, here she is talking about a very difficult choice that she was given when she realized, you know, what was going to happen to her. Were you really going to commit suicide? In really? A you were going to do that? Yeah, because I had no choice. Even I was telling them, but why am this commit suicide? Because there is no other choice. If hospital doesn't accept you, and they don't know what to do with you, you have suffer. Who cannot commit suicide? They suffering till end. It's not. Uh, it's not right. Make make uh, make a human being suffering like this. That is a incredible interview 
Catherine, we can see that tonight on Global News. I just your your last thoughts and and what the plans are uh, for this woman in terms of what happens later this week. Yeah, so her plan is that Friday on Friday she can decide to uh, to take her life. Three doctors will have to be in the room. She will have some friends from the store where she's worked for the past twelve years there by her side. She really just wants to raise awareness. As you heard, that's her dying wish. And she wants, especially immigrants who are alone like her, to know that uh, there is an option here. I did speak to a hospital psychiatrist who says, you know, there's a fine line here. When this law was introduced in 2016, it still says that clinicians cannot counsel patients to commit suicide. And perhaps that is why there's not more awareness. Um, this, this psychiatrist tells me that she believes there's been a lot of public awareness, but clearly there hasn't been because patients like this woman were unaware. And she wants people to know that this is an option for people who have incurable diseases and don't want to suffer anymore. Catherine McDonald, an incredible interview, and you can see that tonight on Global News. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Alan. I, I want to move to the larger issue here because you heard Catherine talking about the law and what it says you can and you cannot do. And there is a great deal that you cannot do. For example, you cannot counsel someone to commit suicide. So in this particular case that we were just talking about, it was the fact that the woman actually raised the fact that this was what she was going to do. These were her plans, that she was going to go and end her life in a park. And at that point, that allowed physicians to then discuss with her what actually is available in this country. Shanaz Gokul is the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada and joins me on the line to talk more about the restrictions in this law. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for, for having me, Alan. One of the big issues going forward, and I will get to the whole religious hospitals issue in just a moment, mm-hmm. but one of the big issues going forward is you cannot forward plan assisted suicide, which seems ridiculous. If you have Alzheimer's, if you have a degenerative disease, why cannot why can I not plan now that in two years, when I know that I will no longer be conscious, that I can have this service? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very important issue for Canadians. We know 80% of Canadians uh, support the option of advanced requests for medical assistance in dying. And, and Alan, I would correct, if, if I may, the language a little bit that um, in Canada, because you are allowed to have both a self-administration for an assisted death, which is assisted suicide, or a clinician administered um, through an IV, which um, is a, you know voluntary euthanasia. When you combine those two terms, um, the most um, uh, adequate uh, and, and proper sort of language is medical assistance in dying. MADE is the, is the acronym that everybody's that's, using. That's right. And, and I think assisted dying here really matters as sort of a, a short term because one of the things that you know your last guest covered, um, and I think it's not clear, and I would say that, you know, if we think about, um, you know, making decisions about your medical health care, you can't make informed decisions if you don't actually have the information. And as an organization, we believe that clinicians can raise the issue of medical assistance and dying with their patients. How else 
I mean, you know, how else can you make decisions if you don't know what all your options are? And I think it's a bit unfortunate, but I'm also, you know, relieved for Violetta that, um, you know, that she did raise it herself. She did find out about it through, you know, threatening um, to, to hurt herself. Um, but we would say that there can be more harm done when um, clinicians don't raise the issue with people who do have intolerable suffering um, and who are saying that, um, you know, they want uh, this to come to an end, that their suffering is too great, um, or even as they're getting closer to that point, just knowing what their options are. Everyone should know what their medical options are in order to make an informed healthcare decision for themselves. Recent stats show that 65% of all medically assisted deaths in Canada were because of cancer, or at least that cancer was the most common underlying medical condition in reported assisted death cases. I want to move to exemptions for religious reasons, which continues to be so thorny. Should, this is the law of the land, why is it that someone in a Catholic-based hospital cannot get services that the rest of the country is allowed to have? And it's a really important question, and I would also say, you know, framing that a bit more broader, that it's not just faith-based hospitals or hospices or long-term care residences that are opting out. Um, uh, There are a number of faith-based ones, but there are also ones that aren't faith-based, and it's a real problem in a number of communities. Um, You know, Violetta was in Toronto, um, and so there are other options, but you can be in a community in Canada where the only hospice is one that won't allow assisted dying. That's where, you know, people go for really good quality comfort care as they are dying. You could be um, in a a community where the only hospital doesn't allow assisted dying and you might have to leave and go to another community and leave the relationships you've built um, at that hospital with um, your health care providers. Um, And we also know that, you know, the system of forced transfers for medical assistance and dying can cause a lot of trauma. In some cases, you know, a person could be so frail um, and, and, you know, their health is so precarious that transferring them physically can cause cause trauma. But we also know that there's emotional trauma, the sense of feeling abandoned. I don't have a a lot of time, but should this not be challenged to the Supreme Court? There's certainly the Constitution of this country must say that there must be equality no matter where. Yeah, we believe, and Canadians all believe in, you know, universal access to health care until you find yourself in a hospital that doesn't want to provide assisted dying, a publicly funded facility, absolutely. And I think, you know, Alan, it's just a matter of time before a case goes to court in one or more provinces challenging this very notion. Um, and it is an important notion. It's one of the few things we can agree on in Canada is we do have a system of universal access to health care for better or worse, it doesn't always work the way we want to, and that facilities that are receiving taxpayer funds should provide all of the legal options for health care, especially basic and essential health care like medical assistance and dying. Shanaz Gokul is CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. An important discussion and another one straight ahead about doomsday cults and why we should be concerned that they may be still around in our communities and what we can do about it. I got a dream and it's all I see. I got my team and it's all I need. I see them hating and it's fine by me. Fine by me. See them hating and it's fine by me. Fine by me.
It has been a while since the news has reverberated with sounds about cults and doomsday cults or cults of any kind, but they still exist and are in our communities, and I think we still need to pay more attention to them than we are. And for example, I will take you to London, Ontario, where two men, Stephen Ravbar and Matthew Carapella, have been charged with nuisance. If you're from the London, Ontario area, these two men are a fixture in the downtown. They often wear placards or clapboards with offensive messages uh, aimed at women. The word whore is often written on it. They will accost and accuse women of wearing makeup. It's, It's vile. But it is based, apparently, in the teachings of William Branham. Branham was an American Christian minister and faith healer who initiated a post-World War II healing revival. He's had a lasting impact on televangelism. And something called The Message is part of his teachings, and it appears that these two men have taken it, perhaps twisted some of it, but there's concern that they are actually part of a cult. And meanwhile, in New York, a man by the name of Keith Renair, who once led a cult-like group in which women were branded and taught to idolize him, will have to face trial alone. For two decades, he was referred to as, quote-unquote, vanguard by his followers in a group pronounced Nexium. He ordered women to maintain near-starvation diets to achieve the type of body he found desirable, punished those who dissipate his edict, He will be facing charges. So those are two examples of how cults still exist in our society. To talk more about this, I am joined by Stephen Hassan, author of Combating Cult Mind Control. Stephen, thank you for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. When I talked about that in the preamble, the message, did that resonate with you? Is that something that you're seeing around North America? So that is uh, an old group that still is proliferating around the world through tapes of William Brannan, who's died. Um, And I had the good fortune of befriending someone who was raised in that group, a man named John Collins, who has been doing incredible research on the entire history of that group and who indeed read my books um, and studied my models, what I call the BITE model of mind control, behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. And he indeed applied his experiences in the Branham message group and said it was a destructive cult. And um, regarding the Ranieri Nexium case, that's a group that I really know a lot about because I've helped people involved with that organization. It started as a kind of multi-level marketing group that got shut down by attorneys general in the United States that morphed into a coaching version of a multi-level marketing group. But Ranieri's um, trial is is um, about to start, um, and he's uh, he's been charged with uh, sex trafficking and forced labor, actually racketeering uh, uh, racketeering of sex trafficking and forced labor. And there are many women who were branded with a cauterizing iron near their genitals with his initials. 
and one of his former followers, uh, an actress named Allison Mack, uh, who had the secret society. Um, my work uh, helping people get out of mind control groups has been going on for 43 years, and uh, the, the issue is bigger than ever, uh, and people don't understand that there can be political cults, and the biggest one in the world right now is the Chinese government uh, that's doing brainwashing programs in, in their society and uh, has a surveillance authoritarian um, um, uh, structure to it that's doing the bite model, just as I was describing. And then there are small little microgroups, like apparently this, these two men who, uh, who are basically uh, in a delusionary kind of mode where they think that they're doing God's will and that these are the last days and they're trying to get people to repent. Stephen, uh, I think our, our listeners... successful. Our, our listeners will be saying when they hear these examples, well, that's all, all well and good. I'm sure that the people that were brought into these cults were you know, troubled in some way. I would never, ever be able to be swayed very quickly because we're almost at a time. Should, should we all be concerned that we could possibly come under the sway of something like this? Absolutely. So uh, that's Part of the, 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 the lore is if you think that you're invulnerable to deceptive recruitment and hypnosis and mind control techniques, then you're especially susceptible. Uh, the best thing is to learn about tactics and techniques of destructive cults and to use critical thinking to connect with your family, your friends, to go to theologians if you're involved with some religious group, and reality tests because... Uh, in terms of religion, the Abrahamic religions, they're all based on the notion that people should follow God out of faith and out of their own choice and not out of coercion or mind control. Stephen so Hessen is, sorry, Stephen, we just have to, we have to run. We could talk about it a great deal more, but uh, Stephen, H-A-S-S-A-N, if you're looking for any of his books, Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. When, when we come back, we're going to be talking about not criminally responsible. It's all thorns, all thorny issues on this show. Do you want to go, do you want to go to the dark side? The shadows, the shadows, where we can hide. I don't care, I don't care how far you want to go. I know this is a topic that is going to make you shake your head. NCR, not criminally responsible. April 15th marks a dark day in Calgary. It was April 15th in 2014 that five young people lost their lives in a mass killing. Matthew DeGroote was declared not criminally responsible for those killings. It was determined he was mentally ill at the time of the fatal stabbings and wasn't able to understand his actions were morally wrong. Since then, DeGroote's status is assessed at a hearing held once a year by the Alberta Review Board. Of course, more recently and closer to home, Rohini Bissasar was found not criminally responsible for a fatal stabbing at a shopper's drug mart in downtown Toronto 
That was during an emotional court appearance. Bissasar, 43 years of age, had pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder in connection with the attack on a complete stranger that happened in December 2015. Rosemary Juner, a newlywed, died in hospital days after being stabbed in the heart. She was simply browsing at the makeup counter on a break from her job where she worked as an ultrasound technician. Here is his her brother's reaction when the finding of NCR was declared. There's no, there's no justice. She got no, no justice. justice, right? We all know that, like I said. Like, like I said again, if it was your daughter, your mother, your wife, that she did that too, would you say that this girl is criminally insane too? So think about it. Think about it. There is no justice. Is NCR a lack of justice? Is it a way to skate responsibility for what someone has done? Cynthia Fromstein is a criminal defense lawyer with experience in mental health and NCR cases, and she joins me on the line. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. When we hear NCR, I think so many of us will have the same reaction as that young man we just heard from, that it is a travesty and it is a lack of justice. But you believe otherwise. I think that that is based on a, a real lack of understanding. Uh, first of all, I, I, as people may know, uh, first of all, mentally ill people are generally not violent. Uh, most, more often, um, they are victims of violence than perpetrators of violence. And when there is uh, the, the cases that you've referred to um, are, were acts of random violence, and if, you know factually and statistically. Um, I think it's under a quarter of all offenses are perpetrated on strangers. Most often, someone who is suffering from a mental illness um, commits an offense against their own family uh, by reason that they are, you know, sometimes uh, psychotic, locked in a room, thinking they're, you know, the walls are talking, etc. And then the family is those that are closest to them. And the last thing is most, most of the offenses that for which people are found not criminally responsible are, in fact, minor offenses, uh, assaults, threats. So these, these cases that you refer to are really, uh, firstly, not the norm. And it's a rigorous test uh, to get to be found not criminally responsible, you know, is, is you know, very uh, strictly scrutinized by the courts for someone who did not appreciate, uh, by reason of their mental disorder, um, the nature of the act of what they were doing, or that it was wrong. And that's usually because they're in a psychotic state. So, and and then, uh, you know, I can go tell you about the process of what happens to someone who is found not criminally responsible. It is not... Um, uh, it's not a free ride. Uh, they are then come under the jurisdiction of uh, the provincial review board uh, in their in whatever province there are. What kind of condition are they held in, though? If you would think that it, you know a, a a manslaughter or above anything two years or above, you're in a federal penitentiary, and those are those are not nice places to put it mildly. Well, I first of all, I, I think the the understanding is that these are not people who had malicious intent. Uh, they're people who committed a criminal act but did not have criminal intent. So the, the goal in terms of how to address this is not one of punishment, uh, but it is one to protect the public uh, because these people were ill, so to address their illness. Uh, so that, that's 
one standpoint. So it's not the, the goal to put them in a, in a bad place. But uh, psychiatric hospitals are not an easy place to be uh, to live in either. So someone who's under uh, the jurisdiction of the review board has a lot of very stringent uh, and strict rules. So they're going to be kept, uh, you know, for an offense uh, that you describe, uh, most likely, and I think in both the cases that you referred to, uh, they, they went into a psychiatric hospital. And there they're under, you know, very strict supervision in, a, in locked facilities um, where um, they get, you know, any kinds of... Um, Increased privileges are done on a very incremental basis, um, and so they they are so and they're being treated there um, until such time as they can have uh, other freedoms. Um, the idea being that public safety is always foremost, uh, and at the same time, you're trying to treat the illness. Uh, trying to give someone insight into ultimately uh, with the goal that they will um, internalize uh, the ne- the need for ongoing treatment rather than have it externally imposed upon them. Cynthia Fromstein is a criminal defense lawyer with experience in mental health, and of course May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And I thank you for coming on and talking about such an Im- important thing and giving some perspective I think that we don't often have. Thank you. All right, it has been, man, it has been a heavy hour. Am I right or am I right? Let's stretch it out. Let's stretch it out and let's ride it out with a little Rip and Read. Now here, I'm just going to set up what Rip and Read is. If you're a first-time listener, and I know that uh, most of you are devoted and spend your entire hours with us, I'm speaking to you, Dad. Thank you. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> uh, so what Rip and Read is, is we get the interns, because we've got, we've got a, an army of them back there, an army of interns, and we get them to go and they just grab wire copy from the news services that we have coming into the station, and they just print out a bunch of it, and then they hand it to me, and I have not seen any of it. So this is me reading this cold. Now, I wouldn't try this at home. This is for experienced anchors only. This is, I wouldn't try this at home. This is difficult now. So I am going to now, for you, this is kind of like, this is like, a, like 8 Mile. I'm like Eminem. And so I'll need a beat for this. Oh, yeah. Straight out of the dungeons of news. Where anchors don't make it back. A little Nas for you. We're ripping. And we're reading. Guinness tells marathon running nurse, no skirt, no record. A British nurse who ran the London Marathon in her uniform says she has been denied a Guinness World Records listing because she wasn't wearing a skirt. Jessica Anderson ran last week's marathon at a time of 3.08.22, half a minute faster than the existing marathon record for a woman in a nurse's uniform. Anderson says she was informed that her uniform of medical scrubs with trousers did not meet Guinness's rules for a nurse uniform, a blue or white dress apron, and traditional cap. Next up, invited wild raccoon moves into German zoo. Keepers can't kick him out. A wild raccoon has moved into the Heidelberg Zoo in Germany, and keepers can't keep him out. The German Daily reporting Friday that zoo staff recently discovered the uninvited guest inside the raccoon enclosure, where he seemed to be getting along fine with the seven original residents. The newspaper reported the interloper, nicknamed Fred, can expect free board and lodgings for life because European Union's rules forbid him from being released back into the wild. Socialism! Next up. 
this bikini may cause cancer. Beachgoers have enough to worry about with harmful UAV rays shining down on them. And now they might have to add cancer to that list. A bikini for sale at Fashion Nova website is creating some negative buzz because it contains a cancer warning tag stitched onto it. The two-piece neon green water sports bikini has a warning noting that revealing the revealing swimsuit can, quote, expose you to all kinds of bad stuff, which are known in the state of California to cause cancer, birth defects, and other reproductive harm. Enjoy the bikini. I got one time, one time for one more. Go! Rippin'! Raiden! Chinese He-Man Club KOs K-Pop. The Chinese government has issued an edict. K-Pop is for sissies. We don't get K-Pop, so the sugary sweet musical confection from Korea, but we accept it. Not so much in China, where the one-time Maoists consider it decadent and a threat to the future of the empire. We are out of time, rippin' and a-readin'. Thank you so much for joining us. We're back again tomorrow.